Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see all of you this morning. If uh, we have not had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Brian, and I have the pleasure of working with our youth ministry here at River Oaks. And uh, we are so glad that you are here worshiping with us this morning or joining us online. And uh, this is really my first chance uh, that I have had uh, to say thank you to our church for blessing me with a sabbatical this past summer. As a part of my 10-year anniversary on staff here at River Oaks, the church blessed me with two months off uh, to enjoy some time, uh, to rekindle my love for the Lord, to refresh my spirit, to renew my calling, to spend some great time with the family. And um, I enjoyed hearing some of like what David Beatty got to do on his sabbatical a few years ago and uh, some of our other pastors. And uh, I just wanted to share just very briefly some of the things that uh, you all allowed me to do in that time off. And uh, we started off after I got back from our high school trip to Big Stuff to Florida. Uh, we drove all the way back to North Carolina just to go back down to Tampa in Florida where we left for a cruise uh, with Casey's side of the family and my son Jet ate his weight and, weight and bacon and burgers on the ship. And um, uh, hopefully he's young enough now to, uh, for his cholesterol levels to even out. But if you know of a good cardiologist, we might need one a couple years from now. Uh, Casey and I had a chance to go visit one of my really good friends who I grew up with in my youth ministry. His name's Joe, and he went with his family five years ago, left Greensboro, and moved up to uh, Philadelphia, where he helped start a church uh, with uh, another group of uh, some other families. And uh, while we were up there uh, hanging out with Joe and his family, we toured Independence Hall, uh, the Liberty Bell. I got thrown into prison at Eastern State Penitentiary. Uh, it's the nation's first ever solitary confinement prison. And I uh, got to really learn a lot about um, incarcerations and, and the rise of those in the 1980s here in the United States. I also ate a cheesecake and a Byler's Donut at Reading Terminal Market. We toured the Philadelphia Museum of Art in Longwood Gardens. I worshiped with my family about six different evangelical churches here in the area when we got back uh, home. Um, I spent a lot of time with my kids and neighborhood friends at the pool and a lot of quantity and quality time. Um, I know after doing all that, I am 100% not called to be a stay-at-home dad. Um, kudos to any of you parents out there that are stay-at-home parents. You don't get enough credit. Thank you for what you do as a mom or dad that gives that kind of sacrifice to your family. Most importantly, I refreshed my, sp my soul, spent time with Jesus daily. Uh, I returned to work just about um, a month later um, after I came back from the sabbatical, the sabbatical to go to sabbatical 2.0, where Casey and I, uh, we got a chance to go down to Greece, which was a bucket list trip. Um, and, and if you ever get a chance to go, I'd highly recommend. We spent 12 days uh, kind of touring some different islands where we saw the Acropolis and Mars Hill, where the Apostle Paul was on his second missionary journey. Um, I spent some time snorkeling the beaches in Mykonos and eating Greek delicacies there. Finished our time in Santorini, which included a sunset sail and catamaran cruise around the whole volcanic island, um, enjoying beautiful sunsets that you've probably seen in some of the pictures. And uh, just really, more importantly, spent some time with my wife, Casey. Um, who, just, I want to say, our church is so supportive of not just pastors, but pastors' spouses who often take the back seat um, in, in what we do. So thank you all for, for that time to allow us to do that. 
But we are not here to talk about me. We're not here to talk about my wife. We are here to talk about Jesus. And that is what we are going to do today. We are continuing in a series on 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And that's where we're going to be in the next few moments. Um, so uh, what I want to do is just kind of give you a little bit of a backstory. A couple of weeks ago, David Beatty came into my office and he said, Hey, Brian, um, I have an opportunity to go see uh, my, my grandkids in Chattanooga, uh, uh, Jackson was really wanting G-Daddy to come visit. And so um, he was like, would you be willing to preach? And I said, of course. I'll be, I would love to do that uh, for, for you to have that opportunity. And so um, I said yes and then started looking at where we were in the study and, and realized like, oh man, we're, we're going to be talking about like legal disputes going on in the Corinthian church. I mean, here we have a youth pastor t teaching our congregation on legal disputes in Paul's letter. Uh, and I was like starting to second guess myself. And then I realized where we are next week talking about sexual immorality. And I'm really grateful to be with you all here today. <laughs> so I'm going to pray for us all over again. Lord, we thank you for a chance to be here and to open up your word. And we know that your word is full of truth and wisdom and insight and understanding for us to learn more about how we can know you better and how we can love you more. Lord, I pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. May you guide and direct us through your holy word. And it's in your word and Jesus' name that we pray and we give you thanks. Amen. Well, an investment banker uh, once decided that she needed some in-house counsel, so she interviewed a young lawyer, um, and she said, Mr. Peterson, would you say that you are an honest person? Honest person? This young lawyer replied. Let me tell you something about honesty. My father lent me $85,000 for my education, and I paid back every single penny the minute I tried my first case. Well, she was impressed. And uh, she said, impressive, said the banker. What sort of case was that? Well, dad sued me for the $85,000 that he lent me. <laughs> and it seems that in today's world, while that might just be a funny story, um, it, it's true that it seems that a lot of people can be sued for just about anything and everything. And apparently, we in today's world have not strayed a very far way away from where the Corinthians were, uh, because that was some of what the Apostle Paul was seeing that was going on in the church that he wrote to in Corinth. A little context about chapter 6. The body of Christ, which should be characterized by truth and grace, was being torn apart by such things as divisions and disputes and party politics. It was being ripped to shreds by sexual immorality, which had infiltrated the church and a demand for personal rights. And as our student, Abby, uh, read for us just a few minutes ago, Paul addressed these issues that, we are, that were going on with the believers. He was writing to the believers in Corinth and trying to give some, uh, some redirection on the way that they should be living their lives to honor the Lord. And that's where we're going to pick up now in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, when, you, when one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go before the law, before the unrighteous, instead of the saints? We have already seen in the first few weeks of our study that the Corinthians were very proud and competitive and assertive people. They were especially concerned about their rights. They were extremely touchy if anyone infringed on their rights or inhibited it in their freedoms. Sound familiar? So what happened was that this led to grievances or complaints and squabbles and discrepancies and all kinds of things that were going on that caused strife between 
fellow Christians and such grievances could be harbored unendingly. So much so that they were being carried out and outside people were being brought in to help the Corinthians settle these little disputes or these squabbles that were coming up. And I think that the first thing that Paul's telling the church in Corinth, and I believe that God is also telling us as Christians in today's world, is that suing a fellow believer is inconsistent with our future responsibilities. Suing a fellow believer is inconsistent with our future responsibilities. The believers in Corinth, they were seeking pagan, non-churched people to help them settle these disputes. They were turning to the law and opinions of unrighteous people and selling, uh, suing fellow believers over these really trivial, petty matters. And there might be a scripture that can help us out with this. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, it said, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples by the way you sue one another. Is, is, that, is that what Jesus says? No, of course not. He says that as Christians, we should be characterized by the way that we love one another. We should be quick to forgive, slow to anger, and we should be easily um, able to turn to Jesus as the one that helps us with our feelings. What I believe is that either the Corinthians had forgotten what Jesus said, or they just purely did not think that it had any bearing on whether they should take a brother or a sister to civil court. So when I do a sermon prep, one of the things that I like to do is I, I go through different translations of, of the passages of Scripture. And um, while, while the message translation is not often used for, for teaching, I mean, it, it's a beautiful kind of poetic way of, of trans, translating. The, we use the ESV as a church. I do love what Eugene Peterson's, P Peterson's version says in the message on verse 1. It says, how dare you take each other to court? When you think that you have been wronged, does it make any sense to go before a court that knows nothing of God's ways instead of a family of Christians? What Paul is doing is he's making this point that suing a fellow believer is not the way that we are to live and to honor Christ or to honor each other. And Paul continues to expand on this um, idea of what our, our future roles are as we continue reading in the next verse Verse 2, it says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not incompetent to try trivial cases? Well, maybe you're a little bit like me. And perhaps you were here with us last week when uh, Senior Pastor David Beatty, he was teaching on, on this idea of how we are rightfully to judge others and what we are to not judge others on. One of the things that David said last week was that judgmentalism is never proper. But there are times where we as believers can judge other believers and help them with correction, help redirect people's path. We are not to judge others outside of the church, though, until one day in the future role, we are actually going to have that purpose. In the end times, believers are going to be given some kind of role or some kind of responsibility to judge the world and even to judge angels, as we will see here in just a second. We see numerous places in God's word that believers will have the invitation and the ability to join Jesus, not as an equal, uh, or not, not even in his place, but instead as players at the table to help in this role of judging the world in some kind of eternal and end times judgment. Jude chapter 6 can provide a little bit of helpful idea, and, and it speaks of a future judgment of evil angels. It says, and the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority... But they left their proper dwelling, 
that God originally made for them. And he kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. And this is something that we as believers will one day be able to assist uh, the Trinity in helping with. So Paul Gardner, he's a retired pastor and a traveling teacher, and he's the author of several commentaries, uh, one, of, one of which I read uh, in, in my preparation for today's message. And here's some helpful words that he gives. He said, for Paul and the early church, it is given that God's judgment will be carried out by the Christ who is himself the Lord. Paul believes that God's people are invited with the work of, the whole, of their Lord and caught up in his status, being found in Christ, and here's the key word there, participating co uh, co covenantly with him. They are involved in his work and are incorporated in him as they are represented by him so that he can visualize God's people caught up in all that is true of the Lord Jesus. If Christ is judge of the world, then it stands to reason that those in Christ will also judge the world. So once again, we don't take Jesus' place in the judgment of the world, but rather have a seat at the table to help carry out this process. And Paul extends his argument in verse 3 to the spiritual realm and to angels, as we see in this next part of our passage. It says, do you not know that we are the ju to judge the angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? This reminds me of an Old Testament passage of scripture where God clearly stated to the prophet Jeremiah several times that we will indeed judge the wicked. It's one of, um, if you know Pastor David Holcomb on staff, it's one of his favorite verses in all of scripture. Uh, it's Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 5 and it says this. It says, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And in a safe land, you are trusting. What will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? What is going on here in this passage is that a plot had been taken against Jeremiah's life. And he was worried about what was going to happen with this. And God is telling Jeremiah that this plot by somebody named uh, Anoth is a minor incident in light of what is going to ultimately transpire later. In other words, he's telling Jeremiah that if you get tired or being outpaced by Usain Bolt, then what makes you possibly think that you can keep up with Secretariat? And if you want to learn more about this passage, I would highly encourage you, Monday nights, starting in February, Run for God, season 13, really great ministry that our church offers. You can ask more about that um, to David Holcomb on those Monday nights. But what Paul, we're going to get back to today's passage. Paul is telling us that in the end times, believers will judge the world and other intellectual and intelligent creatures. And whether Paul means they're good or whether we judge they're bad, or maybe both is not necessarily specified. However, Paul's, Paul's main point is clear is he has this greater to less than argument. He says angels are, by nature, the highest class of created beings. And if we are to one day judge the world, then we should not mess with these squabbles or these pagan judges. These are not consistent with our roles and our future responsibilities. We're, get, we're being too much caught up in all of these worldly things. So Paul is saying that you and I who are in Christ will someday judge these extraordinary creatures. We certainly should be able to handle the mundane matters of life that the Corinthians were seeking outside pagan courts to help them settle. Kyle Dillon is an assistant pastor uh, at another River Oaks Presbyterian Church in Tennessee, and he provides this helpful reminder. He said, 
We do not use worldly methods to achieve worldly aims. Rather than all things, we should be set apart as people that are governed by God's word and empowered by the spirit. The church, the church of God should look vastly different from the world. And what I believe that Paul was trying to get at is that, hey, you're allowing the church to look too much like the world. You're allowing the outside sources to infiltrate and to come in. And the church should be holy and set apart, and you should too. And I think the second thing that God is telling Christians in today's world is that suing a fellow believer is inconsistent with how the church should work. Theologian William Barclay he made a fascinating cultural observation about the Greek love for litigation. He says this. He said that the Greeks were naturally and characteristically a litigious people. The law courts were in fact one of their chief amusements and entertainments. In a Greek city, every man was more or less a lawyer and spent a very great part of their time either deciding or listening to law cases. And the Greeks were in fact famous or notorious for their love of going to law. So not unnaturally, certain of the Greeks had brought their litigious tendencies into the Christian church, and Paul was shocked. So here's a little bit of uh, geographical context of what we have going on here, okay? So um, when Casey and I had a chance to go down to, to Greece, one of the things that we uh, realized was that Corinth was actually relatively close. Now this is a map of Paul's missionary journeys, but um, you can see these two arrows, and it's hard to really see by the map. But Athens and Corinth are roughly about 50 to 60 miles apart from each other. And so while, while we visited Greece, I didn't have this chance to visit Corinth, but we did get to see the Acropolis. And I can only imagine, as William Barclay uh, was, was talking about just a moment ago, about the, the Greeks' love for the entertainment side of things, we did get to see the theater of Dionysus or the Odeon of Herodes Atticus. And while I can imagine the Greeks gathering in some of these places for these theatric squabbles, they were ooing and aahing over the legal show and the grandeur and the optics of all of this type of thing. And this is how they sought after entertainment, much like we might turn on Judge Judy for something in today's world. Now, while it might not be legal in nature, we do this too, right? It's easy for us to fall into the trap of gossiping about people at the salon or trash-talking a coworker when everyone else is doing it, rather than standing up for what's right when we know that the Holy Spirit has put that on our hearts. Our human tendencies gravitate toward our sin nature. And Paul says, hey, that's, that's foolish. That's trivial. Think about much better things. The habit of the Christian in Corinth over litigation was in essence no different from their assimilation to Corinthians' sexual laxity. The world was once again invading the church and it had apparently become a very regular practice in Corinth. And Jesus said in John 17 that we are to be in the world, but not to be of the world. And certainly the world should not be invading God's holy church. And we're going to continue now in verse 4. And Paul says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Paul says, if we have such cases, then why are we appointing judges, those who have, these, have no right standing in the church? And the irony and his sarcasm are biting. The Corinthians invited these pagan judges without status into the church to arbitrate matters within the church. Can you imagine if we did that, did that in today's world? Paul's saying that the church should be able to handle small claims matters. Because after all, we are family. 
We should act like it. And Paul continues in verses 5 and 6. So I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes against brother. Brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. The Corinthian church boasted about its wisdom and how smart they were, yet actions proved otherwise. And as verse 6 makes it perfectly clear, Paul says, shame on you for the harm that you are continually bringing to Christ. And the gospel, as they repeatedly ask unbelievers to handle these disputes and their arguments, if addressing their minor problem situations were some kind of athletic contest, the game was over before it even began. And we see this being argued in the next verse. It says in verses 7 to 8, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. In other words, the game is over before it ever began. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now we can't help but wonder if they were being so quick to sue other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ, that perhaps they were doing this for some kind of monetary gain. This is a really tough pill to swallow, and unfortunately, the Corinthians and too many Christians in today's world love, more, love money more so than they love Christ. They love the gospel, uh, or, or they love uh, the monetary gain more so than the gospel or even the reputation of the church. They sinned against ethical standards, for they actually defrauded if the pro- in this process, they wounded the brotherly love, the koinonia, the fellowship that God wants for his church to have. And Paul says that such behavior is inconsistent with their new identity, which is our next and our final takeaway. The last thing that I think that God is telling Christians in today's world is that suing a fellow believer is inconsistent with the new life that we have in Christ. Paul draws a stark and a striking contrast between who we were, once were and who we are now that we are in Christ after Jesus saved us. The next verses serve as a dual purpose of both rejoicing and providing a great warning. In verses 9 and 10, we read this. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul addresses the believer's nature and the lifestyle before accepting Christ and and the eternal destiny of those who will never do this, who will never trust in Christ, and thus are never regenerated, and thus never sanctified or justified. And Paul warns us, don't be deceived. It's a present imperative, and it sounds a very strong warning. And what is provided in verses 9 and 10 here are nine sinful groups represented those, representing those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And because of our fallen nature, I think it's easy to, to, to understand this in a better context. That Romans 3.23 does say that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one person sitting in this room or has walked this earth before other than Jesus Christ who has ever not been prone to our sin nature. 
But here's the truth. There are people out there whose identities are encompassed in some of these nine sinful groups. And such habits represent who they, who they are. And they have no regard, these people have no regard for what God thinks or his desires. And here's a brief description of each of these vices. The sexually immoral people. The Greek word that Paul uses here is the, the word um, pornea. This is uh, where we get the root word pornography. And it's used here in a general term for those engaged in sexual sin contrary to the teachings of the Bible. This covers sexual activity that occurs outside of the marriage covenant between a man and a, and a woman. And then idolaters. This refers to those practicing perhaps the most basic and fundamental of all sins, where God gave the Ten, Commandment, Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. And one of the things that he did was he said, you shall have no other gods before me. Idolaters give status and position to people and to things rather than giving all of the status and position to God who is worthy of all status and he is before all people and before all things. Adulterers, those who are, sinful, who are unfaithful to their covenantal marriage vows. Uh, Jesus one-upped one this uh, to the Ten Commandments and he said, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you have committed, committed adultery in your heart. The next was men who practice homosexuality. Now, there's a few Greek words that are involved here. The passive homosexual participants was a word called malakoi, and active homosexual participants was a Greek word called arsenkotai. And this is despite cultural accommodation and liberal reinterpretations. It, it, it goes to show that the Bible is, is very consistent in its condemnation of homosexuality and sinful um, and, and is sinful and is contrary to, de to the design of God's plan. The Old Testament and the New Testament both provide multiple places that speak to this in, in, um, in, in greater depth. And Jesus spoke to this issue as well. Thieves. These are anyone, any people who steal secretly attempting to avoid attention. The greedy refers to those who have, um, who have enough and always seek to gain more by any means. Drunkards are those who use alcohol uh, to the point of drunkenness. And a sure way of avoid drunkenness altogether is just to avoid alcohol. Revilers are verbally abusive people who are harsh and abusive with their language in order to mock or scoff or even slander others. And the last one is swindlers. Those are people who forcibly steal from other people. Now, that's kind of a big overview, a whole group, uh, grouping of sinful people. And this is, once again, people who are known by their sins, who, who have no regard, no remorse, no repentance whatsoever for what God wants. And Paul warns, do not be deceived. Don't be caught up in the ways of the world. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul also wrote this, which I think is a very helpful way of summing up all of these nine traits. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This doesn't mean that our sin nature doesn't occasionally kick in, but it's saying that we are not known by that anymore. We have a new identity. This one verse summarizes verses 9 to 10 of today's text and reiterates this point, that suing a fellow believer is inconsistent with our new life in Christ. The Corinthians were living like the unrighteous, and they needed to be reminded that the, unrighteousness will, that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. They will not escape God's, God's judgment. 
they will not enjoy the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that Revelation speaks of. In short, Paul warns that if we live as the world, as the world does, we also will not inherit and spend eternity with God. And now Paul comes in for the landing. He's been flying around, given this big aerial view, and we come in for the landing. And here's the last thing that I think Paul wants us to remember out of today's text. He says, don't forget who you are in Christ. Paul knows many of us have not just sinful, but also ugly and wicked paths. Paul was once known as Saul. He was out killing Christians. He was murdering other people. And he says, don't forget that that's not who you are. That's who you were. You are somebody different in Christ. Paul, out of everyone, knew that. But praise God that that is not who we are anymore because this is our final takeaway. If you don't remember anything else from today's sermon, here's what I hope that you go home remembering. Verse 11, and such were some of you. Underline that in your Bibles. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And I think it's so great to note the Trinitarian nature of what Paul is arguing here. He said that, the God, that God sent the Son, that the Son accomplished the redemption. He did the heavy lifting. He gave his body. He shed his blood. He died for people like you and me. And then the Spirit applies the Son's work to those who believe. We are washed we are sanctified, and we are justified. So, how can we apply this text of a very specific matter that was going on in the Corinthian church, these legal disputes, how can we apply that to today's world for us as believers in America? I would say, number one, seek the heart and the mind of Christ. Seek the heart and mind of Christ. There's so many great scriptures that we can turn to to see that this is something that helps us be set apart. This is something that helps us look different from the world. First Corinthians, uh, sorry, First Chronicles 28 verse 9, it says, As for you, my son Solomon, know that the God your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Or one of my favorite books of the Bible is, is James. In chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, seek the heart and the mind of Christ. The second point of application that perhaps I drew out of today's passage was that we are to live peaceably with other believers. Now, this could be anything from not gossiping about another person to actually not suing another believer, as Paul warns. And here are a few hypothetical modern-day examples of squabbles that I think if Paul showed up in today's world, he might write to the church in Clemens or might write to the church in North Carolina and say some of these things that we might squabble over. Well, someone took my parking spot or... That person is sitting in my favorite seat. Don't they know that I sit there every Sunday? The carpet in the sanctuary should be blue and not red. Or we, sh we should fund this ministry and not that one. I do not like worshiping to that song. Or there should be a choir and an organ. And why are there drums up on the stage? Or the Lord's Supper should use real bread and not a wafer. Or which the wafers are not the best. Um, <laughs> it's still the body of Christ. 
The church leadership should make everyone mask up because cold and flu season is coming. Or the opposite, those people are silly for wearing a mask. Paul would argue, all of these matters, they're trivial. We get so caught up in stuff that it's really trivial. Live peaceably. Perhaps Paul today would encourage anyone with these thoughts or even actions to live out what our denomination's EPC motto, uh, the EPC's motto is. And that says that in essentials, we are to be united. We should stand firm. We should actually stand up if somebody's trying to argue against things that are salvific matters. Things that would argue against pushing somebody who doesn't know, the belie- uh, know Jesus as, as a believer. Uh, that we, should, we should help them understand this. We should help them know what the essentials are. But in the non-essentials, we can provide liberty. This is where we can live peaceably with one another, as Paul would argue. And more, most importantly, the EPC motto is summed up with the last part. It says, in all things charity, or in all things love. No matter what our position is, no matter what our heart's posture is, we should love one another. We should live peaceably with one another. We should seek the heart and the mind of Christ. And the last thing that we can do is that we can pray for any misguided postures or positions that you might have. Repent and seek forgiveness and restitution. If the Holy Spirit has put something on your heart and your mind as you're listening to this today, if he's recalling something to your mind as perhaps we went through some of those nine uh, different subsections of, of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, maybe he's um, doing something, he's pricking your heart a little bit so that he's calling to, to your heart and your mind sin that we can repent from. I know that that happened to me as I was preparing for today's text. And so now as we close, I'm going to invite us to do just that. But perhaps before we pray, I just want to say if you are not a believer, if you are, not, if you are here today and, and you've never given your, your life to the Lord, I would say that today is a great day for you to seek the heart and the mind of Christ for the first time. To say, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and to recognize that Jesus died for you. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to have a moment where I'm going to pause, and I'll pray for all of us. And um, I just want to remind everyone that we have places in the back where we have people it would be our, our greatest pleasure to pray for you before you leave. If there's something that you're struggling with, something that you just need prayer for, uh, please seek out one of our deacons that's at the back tables, and we would be happy to pray for you or even to help walk you through what it looks like to give your life to the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are so inadequate. We know that you know our heart's disposition to be people who chase after what we want and not what after you want. And we thank you that you give us your word to redirect any kind of misgivings, to redirect where we have gone astray. Lord, we uh, are going to pause for just a moment to pray for these matters where perhaps we need to understand these misguided postures and positions that we have placed in our lives that are not the way that you would have us to live. We, we are going to repent and seek forgiveness and restitution. Lord, I thank you for verse 11. I thank you so much that we are not what we once were. 
that we instead have been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not by our own doing, but it is the free gift of God. We thank you that you have loved us so much that you gave us your only son to die for us and that you applied that work through the spirit of of our God into our lives. And we pray, God, that you would allow us to remember that this week. We pray that we would be able to live peaceably with other believers and to seek the heart and the mind of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.